All right, hopefully you can hear me and give me a wave as well. Uh, doing all right, that's always a good feeling. Uh, thanks for everybody waving at me, makes me feel really great today. Um, but as we get started in our time together, uh, this is kind of that expository moment where we come together in our week. And one of the best things about doing this over Zoom is we're doing this live together, still as we would on a regular Sunday morning. So we think about what happens in this time, right? The Word of God has existed and has been given to us, and now it's brought to you through the words of men to the people of God together. So as we meet in this time, it can seem like absolute foolishness that there's this word being spoken through a simple person who's coming to bear that to you. But in this time, we know that there's the power of God at work, that God is going to use his word in this exact time through all the living rooms, dining rooms, and kitchens, and other locations where this is coming into. And God is going to speak to us together through his word. So I'm going to just ask that God does that work. We know he is powerful and will do it. So let's just embrace that together. <clears throat> God, we do ask for your spirits working through your word. God, we know you act. You're alive. You care for us. You meet us where we are. God, I pray that in these few minutes together in our week, that as we gather together as family, that we would hear your voice, that your text of scripture would come before us, that we would be humble before it. And God, that you would meet us, that you would feed us, that you would lead us in how we should go. We ask for this work of your spirit in our lives this morning. Amen. So if you go to the next slide, <clears throat> just as I think around uh, finally and where we are. So I actually played uh, basketball uh, for a short time in high school, believe it or not. Uh, it was not my sport per se, but I enjoyed defense really in basketball is what I liked. I liked boxing out, deeing up your man, working hard to steal, deflect the ball. I liked taking charges, loved diving after loose balls, kind of all that general non-skill hustle stuff. That was my game. So my coach would put me in when we needed a spark, when there were a couple minutes uh, to try to get things going again, when we seemed to lose intensity. They'd put me in, cause all kinds of havoc, and then get me out of the way so the scorers could score. Uh, I also saw a lot of time when the game was long over. So one way or the other, either we're blowing somebody out or they were blowing us out. That was my time. So I had a lot of uh, garbage ball uh, times to play, as you will. And uh, throughout the season, I'd get my steals, my rebounds, I'd get on breakaways, and I would brick layup after layup. I'd have open looks, rim that shot, miss it. Miss free throw after free throw. And it came to the last game of the season, and there was a sense of, well, it's now or never. And so late in the fourth quarter, down by about 20 points or more, I received the pass on the baseline. Now, just a few possessions before, a friend of mine had a shot, and he put up this beautiful little jumper, and this enormous man just threw this ball completely against the wall and crushed it with his block. So after seeing that, in my mind, I understood that I would need to really do something special with this shot to get it over this enormous giant who was guarding me. So it's at that point that I hesitated slightly, probably a little bit more out of fear than an actual you know, shot fake, but it had the same effect. The giant leaped in front of me and started to descend and gave me just that window of time when I could throw up something we could call akin to a hook shot 
as it went through the air, a little bit more like a rocket than a basketball shot, straight up arcing, hits the rim, and for this one moment, unlike countless other shots that I took where the rim touches it and gives it back, this one time it rolled in and I scored. It was that first bucket that I made in playing basketball, the only bucket that I made in playing basketball in a game. And it was at that moment that I experienced incredible excitement and joy. I could hear audibly from the cheerleaders baseline, Tim finally scored. Wow. Parents in the crowd were cheering, way to go, Tim. Great shot. Other players on the court running up to me and saying, Tim, you scored. That was great. We get back on defense, of course. But it was that moment when you finally experienced that joy. You took all those shots. You practiced all those sessions. And you wanted the joy, that moment of success. So many opportunities, so many attempts. It could have happened sooner, but it hadn't. And now finally, now finally, I had made it. I was getting my due. So when I titled this sermon, I was thinking about he is finally first. That's what I thought about it as we look at the, me the message of Christ here in Philippians chapter 2. And let me just say, it's not that kind of finally that we're talking about. This is the finally of finality. It's getting it in the end what Christ was due all along. It's not a statement of, oh, it finally got there and I didn't know if, if we ever would. It's not the finally of, oh, now we know that really Christ can be cheered and praised. No, this is the finally of completeness and totality of recognizing who Jesus is and giving him that due. So let's uh, jump into the words of our text today. And in light of that, read those together. So here we are in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Last week, we looked at the verses just prior to this. So you may be familiar with this, uh, this text of Scripture. But I'm going to just read these and then get started explaining them and working through them together. So Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the big idea this morning that we're going for is how do we respond to this text? You know, really all the texts of the Bible call on us. They, they speak to us, and we must respond to them. It's understanding them, believing them, and then living differently. But this is what we must do today specifically in this text. And so as we think about this and we read these words in front of us, we understand this is about the exaltation of Christ. So how do we respond to that? So as we get a little bit further into uh, the sermon today, we'll talk about what our three responses to this text should be in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, at the exaltation of Jesus. But to begin with, let's just really work these words. Let's see the text in front of us and understand what is going on in these verses. So if we go to the next slide, we'll zoom in a little bit on verse 9. So we see the word therefore that's presented. And this is connecting the ideas of last week's sermon, really, about the low, low humility of Jesus and his function as a servant, that he became human and he lived his perfect life as a servant for us and that he died, even dying on the cross. Then today, as we look at our verses in 9 through 11, we're seeing all one sentence here, actually. In all verses 9, 10, and 11, it's one sentence in our text here today. But there's two key verbs that come at us here, right? Two key phrases here that we look at. 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. So you see those italicized in front of you. The subject of both of these verbs, as you notice, is God. God is the one who's doing this action, notably on or toward Jesus. He's the indirect object, if you will, the one receiving or being acted upon in these words. So God is the one exalting Jesus and bestowing or giving something to Jesus. The thing being given, as we see at the last phrase there on the slide, is it's a name. Now, it's not just any name. It's a name that's above every name. Let's look at our next slide on verse 10. We'll dig into this a little bit more. So this begins with a purpose statement. You see the word so that in verse 10. And then what I've kind of done is I've laid out just the top of verse 10 and then the very end of verse 11 with a little bit of ellipses in between. We're going to look at that in just a second on the next slide. But just so you know, it's not missing if you're looking at your Bible. We're just focusing in on those two parts, the ones at the top and ones at the bottom. So with this purpose statement, so that we understand why this is happening, why God has taken this action. Why has he been exalting and bestowing something to Jesus? Again, we see that this is about a name. We see here uh, in verse 10 a clear referent that the name that we're talking about is Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. And then on the other side of the ellipses, at the very end of our section in verse 11, we see the mention of Jesus again. This name that is above every name is now clearly identified as Jesus. Now, why is this significant? As we look at those words in front of us, we see the significance comes in understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, when we see that name, it's, it's not like that's a magical name, okay? It's actually a common name in the first century land of Israel and, and even before. It's usually pronounced as Yeshua, which is really more commonly pronounced as Yahshua or Joshua when we think about that name in English. So a very common name. People are named that still today, and they were named that many, many years, and there were probably lots of uh, Yahshua's walking around in, uh, in the time period of Jesus' day. So that's not what's interesting here. That's not what's different. That's his name. But what is significant is the title. Christ is a title, not Jesus' last name that's included. It's saying the Messiah is really what we mean by Christ. So Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer of Israel, who was promised to them in the scriptures. And then we have the explanation. Okay, so Jesus, the Messiah or Christ, is Lord. So Lord, what, what do we mean by this? What is coming out from this text that's so essential that we understand that Jesus, the Christ, is Lord? You know, Lord in our society still carries this meaning of authority or reverence, um, even for deification at times, that it pertains to God. But we also know that in the days of like castles and knights and all that, that rulers were called lords. And that's kind of closer to the concept that we have conveyed here about Jesus. The idea is, yes, Jesus is God, but also that he has all authority and sovereign rule as well. It's also likely that this is a statement of replacement or kind of substitution. It would have been common in Jesus's day to say Caesar is Lord at that time period in the Roman Empire. But instead, Paul writes, borrowing possibly from an early Christian hymn, that Jesus is actually Lord. And by replacement, that means Caesar is not the Lord, but Jesus is the Lord. So think about this. No politician or political party is Lord. 
No charismatic personality, celebrity, author, or leader can be Lord. No, we're told very clearly, Jesus is Lord in reality. So this substitution of the Lordship of Jesus is actually to the glory of God the Father, as we see at the end of the slide. This is a resounding mark of knowing that Jesus is Lord makes God happy and shows off his greatness in that Jesus is Lord. So let's go back to that little section that we missed there in the ellipses. So if we go to the next slide, we see what's happening there. At the name of Jesus, what is supposed to happen? Verses 10 and 11 state this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there are parallel actions here, right, with the inclusion of participants kind of explained as well. It's told that this accounts for every person, all in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. We could probably think about this as literally every human ever is probably encompassed in those phrases. Everyone who's currently alive, everyone who's in heaven, everyone who's in hell, every human being ever is included in these actions of bowing the knee and confessing with the tongue. So what do we do with a text like this, right? How do we respond to it? It's hopefully very straightforward. It's only a few verses. You read through it. Um, hopefully that helped to explain a little bit more of it. But how do we respond to this text? What do we do? Well, there's three responses we must have as we hear of this exaltation of Jesus. We must follow, we must revel, and we must marvel. Follow, revel, and marvel. And we're going to unpack those together as we think about how we respond to this text of Scripture. So on our next slide, we see our first response, okay? This is the ethical response, or how do we live? How do we act? We follow Jesus, knowing our hope is sure, and that as he was accepted and was exalted, so are we. So this is not a, a tr merely a tragic story about Jesus. Often we hear about Jesus from secular historians as this sort of figure out of sorts with his times and through no fault of his own, was misunderstood and kind of quietly murdered. Then the author whacks on about the consequences of ideas. They're hijacking the story of Jesus. Okay, that's not his story at all. The story of Jesus doesn't end this way. He doesn't just die as a victim. He is raised from the dead victoriously over his enemies. And as these verses tell us, he's not merely raised, he's actually exalted by God, highly exalted and given a name above every name. So as we carry on in the work of being Christians, followers of Jesus, we're believing the gospel, fighting sin, imitating Christ's lowly humility, as we heard last week, and being the church on earth all with all of these things, we will be lowered. We will be humbled. We will suffer. We will face loss and perhaps even persecution at times. If our master, fast, uh, if our master faced these things, then it should be no surprise that we, his followers, have a similar life ahead of us. But these verses of an exalted Jesus also tell us that God sees and remembers us and rewards us in this life as we go forward. What this means is ethically, we are to live in light of this. God has vindicated Jesus in the sacrifice of his life on the cross for us. He was raised. And more than raised, he was exalted. And that's a testament to the acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus. So as we're humbled and in our broken world, 
this means something for our sanctification, our living holy lives. It means that as we continue on, that sanctification will happen. We will reach a point of ultimacy, of glorification. We will be exalted. This is not all there is. We see that in the life example of Jesus and his exaltation. So as Jesus was humiliated and accepted and exalted, then as we follow Jesus in faith in the same way, we too will experience, after a humbling journey of this life, acceptance and exaltation derivatively from Jesus. So we follow Jesus and we look ahead, following him in exaltation also. And God blesses the humble as the very last and least of us too will experience being brought to first through Christ. That's an exciting thing to live in, in light of, that we can completely know that God is for us and he will do this work. So we can follow Jesus knowing our hope is very, very sure. But our second response is really on the next slide that we need to have a doxological response. This is how do we worship? How do we have glory and praise toward God in what we read in this text? So we should be reveling in the fact that Jesus is due all worship and, and don't miss the end, and he's going to get it. So this is an exciting part as a follower of Jesus. Our Lord is going to be worshiped. Think about this, right? We know who Jesus is, and we know how great he is. And he's shown us great mercy, and he has loved us greatly. He has been a humble servant to us. He's cared so deeply for us that he took on humanity and lived a life in this world obediently. And before that, and did it before, but then he came to the agony of dying for us on the cross. Then he was risen and reigns, and then he still hears us, and he prays for us before the Father. So our Lord Jesus will finally be worshipped, and that's exciting. I mean, it's hard to imagine. But the words of this passage are, are really, really interesting for us of what's going to happen in the worship of Jesus. So Jesus, in our day, right, is more likely to be the end of a joke or a curse than to be praised by the tongue of those around us. Jesus is, is seen as a figure of history or, or worse sometimes, a fictitious deity to be trampled on or stepped over toward our own dominance and self-actualization in the world. Not, not someone we kneel to. That, that's not what we see in our day. So we live in a place and an age where those acknowledging Jesus and worshiping him in posture and voice we're the ones that seem so out of step with the world, but not in the future. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So what does that mean in the world? You really mean everyone will worship Jesus? I mean, imagine this. What a day when the whole world finally gets it. They finally know who Jesus is and everyone, and I mean everyone, will know it's so worth it to kneel and can't help but hit pavement before knowing who Jesus is. Bowing the knee. Think about it. Every leader of religion, from the Pope who sees himself as the vicar of Christ, to every imam who thinks of Jesus as a lesser prophet to Muhammad, to the president of the Mormon Church of Latter-day Saints, who doesn't believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God, every knee will bow. From every Fortune 500 CEO to every member of the ACLU, every academic arguing for oppressiveness 
of obeying Christ, to psychologists who are arguing that sin as, a, as, as wholeness, that's what we need, and holiness is what's really hampering us. From abortion doctors, Hollywood producers, racists, and pride participants, they will see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his wonder and majesty and lose all sense of their own greatness and self-righteousness, and they will bow before Jesus. Think of it. Presidents, prime ministers, Congress, kings, governors, mayors, wherever they've stood on the spectrum of opposition to the church and criticizing it as a plague on the world or patting it on the head as a bunch of clueless people, they will see Jesus and they will kneel before him. Your neighbors, my coworkers, everyone in our families, you and I, with all of our neediness, brokenness, dirtiness, and lazy, half-hearted devotion to God, all of us, and from every continent, every nation, ethnicity, men and women, all of us bowing before the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every tongue confessing who Jesus is, the world's Savior and Lord, the Christ, our Messiah, as this text tells us. All 6,500 languages that are spoken today. Talk show hosts, anchors on cable news. TMZ correspondents, social influencers, all calling out and admitting that Jesus is Lord. All who love Jesus, all who oppose him, all who refuse to acknowledge him now and who act as if he doesn't exist, young and old, will finally at that day bow the knee and confess with their tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that's eschatological. Okay, that's our theology word to say. That's the future. That's toward the end times. It's amazing to think about. And it means it hasn't been fully realized yet. So I need to go a little bit further so you can picture this, all right? So I got one soundbite for you to get a feel for what this is like. It comes from Revelation chapter 5. Here what happens. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, that's Jesus, standing as though it had been slain. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain by your blood. You ransom people for God and every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's what Philippians 2 is talking about. That tells us what this worship will look like. Of every single person will turn and know who Jesus is. Now, it doesn't completely mean that everyone is going to do that in a way that shows that they're absolute faith, but they will know it in reality and in trust. So we get this glimpse, this one soundbite to understand what it's like. And in some senses, this is happening already, right? As a church of Jesus, we know who Jesus is 
And we get to worship him now as we know he will be someday. So we know the worship he is due and that he will receive. And so now we worship God, Jesus Christ, in prayer, in song, in our words, and our actions. So we do it now like we know what he's really worthy of. So when I go to concerts, small confession here, whether it's an elementary children performance, college performance, or professional band or something like that, I kind of dread the end of concerts. I dread that awkward moment at the end of the concert when we're all clapping and there becomes this decision, oh, are we going to give this guy a standing ovation? You know that moment? And I don't know about you, but, you know, the piano recital was great. I don't know that it really needs a standing ovation. Um, I've been to many concerts where I'm like, yeah, they're all right. I don't really need them to do another set. Could we just end it there and we can, we can move on out? So, you know, I sat through a performance of a group called the Tuba Lollipops before in college. So let me get, explain this. This is a bunch of dudes playing tubas in a concert, like solos, like tuba solos, tuba duets. When that thing was done, there was no need to ask for anything more. We were like, I've had more than enough tuba for a lifetime. And yet people around me stand up. Oh, we got to be so nice. Let's give them a standing ovation. And reluctantly, you know, I, all right, I'll get up. I'll call three, clap my hands and, you know, we'll get on with this thing so we can keep going. But you know the difference when you've heard someone who actually is deserving of that level of praise, that the standing ovation feels like the least you can do. I remember the first time I heard Yo-Yo Ma at the BSO and I got to the end of that. And I felt like I should just be ripping the seats off from around me and clanging them together to see if I could possibly beg him to play any more music that night. That's how it should feel when there's this acknowledgement of Jesus, that we know what he's due. We see it before us. And in the future, it won't be this tacit acceptance. It will be an overwhelming testament to the reality and appreciation for who Jesus is as Lord. So if you jumped on our Zoom call today with us and you don't know uh, who Jesus is and you don't know that you or you do know that you don't worship him as Lord, then I invite you to recognize the scriptures. Know the sweetness of the love of Jesus that so many of us can attest to. Jesus knows your sins and my sins. He's died for us that we might be forgiven and live forever loving and worshiping him. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But knowing that you will understand and worship Jesus someday, either way, it's going to happen. So I pray that you might begin to worship Jesus today. So finally, we have one more response to this text. We go to the last slide. This is our theological response, all right? This is understanding something about God. And we need to marvel that Jesus shares in the worship meant only for God. So we can't read the text of this hymn in Philippians and miss what it's teaching us about God. And marvel is the word that I, I think to use because it describes this as best I can think of, like an emotional response because of an intellectual grasp of a truth. So look, we should be interested in knowing what the Bible says about God. It's of an internal purpose. Um, it's a big part of our lives forever. And so there's nothing really more essential than God. So let's spend a few moments just looking closely at the sermon to see what it tells us about what God is like. One of the fundamental aspects that makes God God is his rule and sovereign authority. These are marks of unique divinity. You know, that's what makes him God. He really does run the world. He really does 
have authority over everything. So we know that God is creator, sustainer, a sovereign ruler of the world. Just one small example from the older covenant uh, from Exodus chapter six, verse two and three, God appears in the burning bush to Moses. God says in that verse to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So God, as revealed in the Old Testament, was known as Lord. And now Jesus, in this verse in Philippians, is ascribed as Lord along with the Father. Now to us, we, now to us, we might be fine with sharing a title with someone else. Um, take what you can, and if someone else shares a title, no big deal. But along with the title of, G, of Lord comes an expectation of worship. And who or what we worship is a really big deal. Worship is the difference between devotion to God and idolatry, the very essence of heaven and hell. So it's very interesting. When we look at our next slide, we see some words from Isaiah that help us make sense of what's happening here. In Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 through 23, we read, And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the end of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So there is no other gods beside me. I am God and there is no other. This is a very exclusive position that we see read here. And with that exclusive relationship, you see at the end, is exclusive worship. Those familiar words to us in Philippians 2 first appeared here in the, in the, in the writings of the prophet Isaiah with God saying, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So in Philippians, we see this text from Isaiah is echoed, taking the title Lord and the exclusive worship of God in the Old Testament and extending it to Jesus. This, this is amazing. Jesus is God, and we understand him as distinct from the Father, but receiving the same title and worship as God. So he must be God. Jesus is God as well. There is no rivalry, there is no equality, and there is complete equality in the Godhead. There's mutuality and love known within the Trinity of God. And it's expressed and displayed for us here in the exaltation of Jesus. So we see this remarkable transformation of Jesus as human, a servant humiliated to death, even death on a cross. And then God exalts him and bestows a name to him. And we must respond to this text. So we respond by following in Jesus' example, and be assured of our own acceptance by the Father. We revel in the fact that Jesus being you all worship, and that's a beautiful future that we have, and it's a fact that he will get it. And we can marvel that Jesus shares in the same worship that's been meant for only God throughout the writings of the scriptures in all time. So in this time of great upheaval in the world and our lives, and we're all taking stock, we feel loss, and we see so much that we've loved in our lives that simply cannot satisfy. It's in this season, won't you remind yourself of Jesus? Jesus Christ is Lord. And this has such rich implications for us in our lives. So let's orient and remind ourselves in our hearts of the call to worship our exalted Lord Jesus this week.
Let's pray. God, we praise you. There's, there's really hardly any more words to say. But God, we ask that you would aliven our hearts to this truth this week, that as our hearts beat and we take another breath, that we would know we've been made to worship you, Lord. That we would long for the day when all will worship you. Give us that hope and excitement in our weeks. 